Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's also where you can find details of our events in person and online, including Neil Stevenson in conversation with Francis Fukuyama on Neil's new book, Termination Shock. Coming up on the show today, Parag Khanna, founder of FutureMap and author of the new book, Move, The Forces Uprooting Us. Uh, Parag, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you so much, Richard. Great to be with you. So congratulations on the new book. Uh, the opening question in Move is where will you live in 2050? Uh, so where will we live? Well, we're going to live in different places than we live today. At least most of us will. But actually, the answer is that we might be moving more than just moving from one place to another, which is to say always on the move, perhaps more nomadic as a species than we have been for the past several thousand years. Again, at least for most of us, we often generalize about things like the passage or the transition in human geography from being nomadic to sedentary. But the truth is that many people uh, have perpetually been on the move due to varying circumstances. And what I document in the book is the driving forces for migration over time. Uh, things like climate change, which obviously is already now again one of the greatest drivers of people having to relocate either domestically or internationally. But of course, wars, conflicts, genocides, expulsions, uh, economic crises as well, of course, famines, droughts, you name it. And all of these factors were not simply switched off due to the pandemic. You know, we look at, of course, the past couple of years and we see or describe ourselves as having been locked down. Now, but the fact is that these these deep driving forces that uproot us as, as people um, are really operating in overdrive and will continue to even after or, or even during this lockdown and certainly after it's over. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Because I mean, the lockdown has definitely taught as a lesson you put you point out in the introduction that we'd become so accustomed to frictionless movement. And then as you say, it all stopped. Yes, it's true. We were locked down. And indeed, the great lockdown was the single most coordinated act, you could say, that's ever been undertaken by the human race, by the human species together simultaneously. Even there, though, there were exceptions. In fact, there were large movements of people during the pandemic. Uh, for example, the South Asian guest workers who returned from the Gulf countries back to India and Pakistan, for example. And so right now, in fact, to this day, if you are from New Zealand, you might still be waiting in a queue to return home because people from New Zealand have realized that their country has performed well during the pandemic. It's something of a climate oasis anyway. And they're literally waiting for the hotel rooms to open up, uh, you know, in order to go back and quarantine or to return perhaps permanently to New Zealand. So the return home is also a form of movement. Movement doesn't mean leaving the one place where you're from uh, on a one-way ticket to somewhere else. Again, it's part of the circulation of people. That's part and parcel of human history. As I say in the book, to move is human. And uh, you know, one of the things that we need to recover and rediscover about humanity is that we are inherently a mobile species and that mobility is perhaps the most uh, sort of tried and true form of survival. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it does tell us something about that movement, doesn't it, the, the lockdown? Because as you point out, there was a, a mad scramble for many in trying to get back to their country of origin. And, and so it, it does suggest that those roots and ties really are deep, that it's not just about where you live and work, where you come from really does matter at quite an elemental level. 
It can. If nothing else, it had perhaps less to do with national identity and a sense of belonging, and more to do with nationality and the legal sort of exigencies of the moment. In other words, people, you know, may have had visas canceled or you know residencies expiring and this kind of thing. But you're right that there was something of a reset. Of geography and nationality, and that is something that I address in the book.、Um, you know, in terms of, you know, is this really a reset in the sense that people want to be in their home country again, or that they have to be? Because ultimately, the true story of the last century, in particular, or last two centuries of migration, is that most of us are economic migrants, right? We are, we will leave our country for a better life, and indeed. If you look at the pattern of American、uh, expatriation and the number of,、uh, of, of you know, sort of、uh, expats,、uh, you know, the number of Americans who have、um, left the United States since about the mid 2000s, before the financial crisis to the present, has more than doubled.、Um, so, you know, clearly, even one sense of patriotism or national identity or loyalty doesn't necessarily supersede one's economic interests and pursuit. Of opportunity wherever it may take them. Yeah, I, I suppose though that it is the flip side of that move coin, isn't it? Home. That home does actually mean something. Home, of course, means something. But home can be also where you make it. It, it can also be the destination, not just the origin. And I think that again, this is not to flip. On its head, the notion of home,、uh, you know, because of course I accept very much that many people today, most people perhaps, may subscribe to the notion of home as that singular geographic place where they come from, their you know country of of ethnic、uh, origin as well. But not everyone has that option. Not everyone sees things in that way. And increasingly, from a generational perspective, what you find in survey data of young people is that、uh, you know for them, home is a choice, not just something that is a、uh, an obligation or an inheritance. One of the things that is fascinating about the book is is how you show how many different factors influence this this kind of movement historically. There's it's political, it's economical, it's technological, it's environmental, it's social, and and just as the lockdown suggests, the scenarios change so quickly that today's lockdown may may be followed by mass migration tomorrow. You say populism today, data driven techno technocratic governance tomorrow. So that there seems to To be a lot of、uh, kind of toing and froing in ways that、uh, kind of lend themselves to the kind to instability. Well, history is most certainly non-linear, and if you think <laughs> about where we were on the eve of the pandemic in December 2019, we had looked back at that year and rec- and、uh, the data. It showed us that you know a record number of people had crossed borders in the year 2019. Never in no calendar year in history had nearly 1.5 billion people got you know crossed borders, and that's obviously mostly freely and voluntarily,、um, whether as tourists, business travelers,、uh, you know expats, whatever the case may be. The number of actual the stock of expatriates had also reached a high, about 270 or 280 million people. So I don't believe. That the pandemic, as a sort of epiphenomenal kind of you know event, suddenly overturns that trend line that we were on. It's a discontinuity. It's a rupture. It's a it's a you know punctuated equilibrium, whatever term you want to use. But there clearly, again, the motivations for people to move to relocate. 
are very, very strong. And they are, quite frankly, even stronger after the pandemic, because if you think about what the pandemic has revealed about state capacity and whether or not you live in a country that is, you know, sort of uh, the kind of place you want to be during a pandemic or given the economic circumstances and the dire conditions in, in economies that have been brought about by the pandemic, quite a few uh, more people, you might even say, than before will want to leave their countries. Um, you can already see this, of course, with the uptick in uh, attempted uh, crossings of the Mediterranean and the English Channel. Obviously, we can see this on the U.S.-Mexico border right now. So to pretend that we can sort of, you know, um, superimpose or reify our, you know, American experience of people casually you know, moving from expensive overpriced cities into suburbs and enjoying more green space and Wi-Fi and remote work, that is not really the fate and the conditions that the rest of the world is experiencing right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm struck in reading the book how important thinking about these kind of things in terms of geography is. You you have a, a wonderful section where you, you talk about the inspiration of the class that you took when you were at Georgetown, a class called Map of the Modern World, I think, uh, taught by Charles Perdell, and, and, and just how influential that was to you, how that really changed your life. It, it does kind of raise the interesting educational question, though. What, why is geography so neglected, do you think? think? Well, it certainly is in the United States. There's that famous saying, war is God's way of teaching Americans geography. And <laughs> clearly, we, we still haven't learned it very well. But uh, I think, you know, just the fact that I, uh, you know, begin the book with that reflection of a class I took 25, 26 years ago, uh, attests is a testament to its uh, the power, the sort of, you know, grip that it had on me. And uh, quite frankly, to a whole generation of students who took it, uh, while undergrad, uh, undergraduates at the uh, School of Foreign Service. But the key takeaway is that there isn't just one geography, right? It, there's the layers of geography, natural geography, political geography, functional geography, and human geography. And the mission I set forth is to reconcile these geographies and to create and sort of really where where complexity collides with geography is where this book is kind of situated. And I don't think that, um, you know, unless you have studied geography formally, perhaps informally, but at least from these varying perspectives and taken it seriously, um, you know, well, basically most people, because they don't, they take it for granted and they ignore it. And we write very, not only ahistorical kinds of things, but but sort of, you know, non-geographical or ageographical sorts of things about even subjects like geopolitics, which of course has me always scratching my head as someone who is, you know, sort of formally trained in geopolitics and, and most of my work is in that field. So the the, the non-geographical nature of most geographic, right, of most geopolitical writing is, is itself just another anecdote that, uh, that, that points to, to what you're saying as well. I mean, it's it's interesting on that that the simple facts of geography. You talk about what you call Northism, that uh, all the most powerful countries in the world and more than three quarters of the world's population are all in the global north. I mean, they have historically and and in the future they are the centres of geopolitics and uh, populations with with huge advantages. How does that how does that affect your analysis and and how does it skew the future of the kind of movement that you're talking about? 
Well, perhaps the best lens to appreciate that is to look at the relationship between demographics and geography. You know, as I point out, North America and Eurasia are the two continental seats of power. They're the two, uh, you know, continents that have, of course, the most uh, economic dynamism, industrial potential, innovation. North America is the closest continent to, you know, in a way, autarky, given its industrial base, population size, technological innovation, um, you know, resource endowments, all of these kinds of things. Um, and Eurasia, of course, contains the majority of the human population just on one contiguous landmass. So in many ways, when we speak about concepts like overpopulation and mass migration and them coming to us and so forth, we, we take a very parochial view as if all of us are sitting in, you know, the Netherlands or in, you know, uh, in Chicago or something like that. But really, the story, the simple geographical story of the future of human demographics is the circular of people within Eurasia, right? Never having to cross an ocean at all. And that's the simple fact of it. So this is where, again, where geography and understanding of geography, a basic appreciation of geography and looking at a map of human geography and understanding where people are and where they're going really boils down to the recirculation of people in Eurasia. So not surprisingly, I spend a fair bit of time on that. And I identify, given climate change and geopolitical and, and trade and economic gravities, new vectors of migration that really human history has never seen before. And those include um, both with South Asia and Southeast Asia being the origin of large population movements, uh, A, to the north, meaning towards Central Asia and Russia. And that's what I refer to as the reverse Mughal empire, you know, kind of overturning 500, the 500 year history of, or at least from 500 years ago, the Mughal um, uh, dynasties moving southward from Central Asia to conquer Delhi, uh, and and the, and the subcontinent. And the second vector being South and Southeast Asians towards Europe. And that's one that's really, again, you know, not part of our historical experience, but already the seeds are quite visible. And the early sort of, you know, taste of that is visible when you travel around a continental Europe today. And I refer to those, those populations as the so-called Asian Europeans. Now, I'm an Asian American, an immigrant to America, but raised, you know, in this hyphenated, with this hyphenated kind of, uh, um, you know, kind of moniker, uh, Asian American, and there are 25 million Asian Americans. Now, every Asian American or the parents of every Asian American had to travel a very long way, certainly across one ocean or the other, in order to arrive on North America's shores, um, as we did flying Pan Am in the year 1983. Um, but it's not particularly difficult eventually for um, South and Southeast Asians to make it to Europe. Right. You've got trains, you've got planes. Europe and Asia are each other's largest trading partners. Europe has the largest labor shortages of any region in the world. Um, younger Asians look very positively towards the post sort of, you know, the post imperial, post colonial European environment as an attractive, safe place. So now you have about four to five million of what of, again, these so-called Asian Europeans. Note that's a term that doesn't exist. I coin it in this book because it's such a um, nebulous, it's such a in infant category, if you will. But I do predict that in the coming, um, you know, generation, there could easily be 20 to 30 or 40 million Asian Europeans, if not more. And again, these are very, very novel migratory 
vectors of mass migrations that that are already beginning and that lie ahead. And those are part of this broader story of the recirculation of people within Eurasia, which ultimately will shape the future of the world economy and geopolitics. Yeah, it's interesting. You you point out in the book that the Asian population is five times that of the US and and uh, Europe put together. I, I I remember hearing John Howard who, when when he was Australian Prime Minister speak, and and one of the questions that he was asked was if if he could know anything about the future, what would it be? What would he want to know? Uh, and his answer to, answer to that was, who? Yes, I'd want to know in fifty years' time who would win in the battle between India versus China. Uh, because the West is going to have a stake in it being India. Uh, I, I wonder what you reflect on that. And, and again, how migration fits into that question? Well, one thing is that, of course, India's population is now equal to and effectively, you know, soon to exceed that of China. It has a younger median age as well. So the demographic advantages lie on the side of India. But let's remember that, um, you know, size isn't everything in terms of population you need to actually harness that population and uh you know sort of um you know exploit its its productivity productive capacity that's not something india has done particularly well i also am not sure that world war 3 will be a you know sort of china india war and that the west would somehow be sitting on the sidelines or actively supporting india in such a confrontation um you know as i explained in my previous book about Asia and the Asian system, most of Asian history has been characterized by a multipolar system and order, not by, it's a very narrow reading of Asian history to frame it as cycles of Chinese tributary orders, because that would be very geographically limiting, under, limited understanding of Asia. But again, going back to geography, Asia is a far wider canvas than merely greater China. So it's fine to say that, that uh, you know, the, the history of Chinese dynasties and Chinese, Chinese international relations, if you will, within its immediate periphery has had periods characterized by hierarchy. It is, it is uh, gravely false to assert that Asia nece by necessity needs to have a hegemon. And this derives from kind of a mistaken reading and projection of Western cycles of unipolar order onto the Asian system. But no such characterization should be made and no such analogy should be made. And again, it's just all part of the kind of, you know, fairly typical at this point, you know, kind of myopia of, uh, of Western international relations theory and discourse. I don't think I'm being particularly subaltern in saying that it's kind of, I think, a established fact. Um, so if you study Asia from the Asian point of view, you don't really see the, the need for a bipolar rivalry between the two most powerful states in the Asian system, because the geography, again, is different. You have, you know, Asia is a very vast canvas and live and let live has been much more the order of the day. Now, that is not to say that there are not very uh, you know, dangerous frictions between India and China. In fact, they're numerous and they're fighting and skirmishing right now in the high Himalayas. But is that going to escalate in the patterns that we've seen in European history? No, of course not. It, it will take, it will mutate in different directions. Now, that said, India plays a vital role in the broader coalition of, uh, you could say, either democracies, Anglophone countries, or other concerned nations um, that uh, spanning the world that are concerned with China's rise and want to build and sustain coalitions either to thwart 
some of its external, you know, aggression or to limit its influence in terms of its model and its economic coercive capacity and so forth. And all, all of that is, is, is to the good. And, and, uh, you know, India's participation in that is very welcome. India's leadership in it, in some particular respects is also welcome. And I think that that is precisely the dynamic that we'll see continue to unfold. Um, if there is going to be actual outright conflict, it's more likely to be some of the much kind of deeper, deeply, in, far more deeply entrenched legacy uh, conflict formations like Taiwan, of course. And and what about the South? I mean, you you paint a very glo uh, gloomy picture there, decaying states and departing populations. Uh, you write about how it's difficult to see a, a positive future. Um, I think you even ask whether the the South will survive. So so what's the what's what's going to happen to the South? It's harsh but true. And if you look at, um, of course, the um, you know the the uh, the you could say unfair distribution of the negative impact of climate change of course southern countries are most uh, you know badly affected uh, by it in terms of drought desertification rising sea levels you know volatility of uh, you know weather patterns and and all of these kinds of things that's that's highly unfortunate they're obviously also geographically circumscribed in terms of migration so the ability of south americans and africans to leave their continent which of course according to most surveys you know a higher percentage of young people in africa and latin america would leave if they could more so than any other region then the irony imposes itself which is that it's harder for them than it is for any other people to migrate given their their geography so in other words most you know south americans and most africans are basically stuck where they are um, and uh, that that obviously puts a ever greater burden on them to get their house in order, both as nations and as as continents. But they have very little capacity to do so. Um, you know, very poor governance, very little international cooperation, and so forth. I think that there are pockets of liv livability, and again, I define those much more in a trans-state kind of way, in a regional way, in a, in, a, in a geographical way based on climatic zones, much more than I do based upon taking the particular na na nation-state units for granted, because those are not really immutable forms. You know, these, these are states that come and go. They're, they're nominal states, many of them, quite frankly. But if you take certain catchment areas, like the East African community and some of those states, you can imagine um, you know, zones of livability spanning multiple countries and having several hundred million inhabitants. Um, you can imagine a certain survivability there. But things don't, won't go as well uh, in many other parts of Africa and, of course, in, in South America, given, um, again, the poor governance, the uh, the fate of the Amazon rainforest and, and so forth. So I'm not particularly optimistic about these regions. And again, demographics play a role in, in geopolitics and immigration policy. As you well know, Europeans will do more or less anything to prevent Africans and Arabs, uh, you know, in ever larger number from coming uh, into mainland Europe. And one of the things that they will also do, and this gets back to something we were just talking about, but people don't make this the following connection, which is that Europe will actually decide that it will in rather than import uh, Arabs and Africans, it will actually bring in more Asians. Because as you can see from the 4 million Asian Europeans that I was alluding to earlier, they have a far higher capacity to assimilate, much as they have in the United States. You know, a willingness to learn the language, to follow the rules, to obey law and order, 
and uh, and all of these kinds of things. And of course, they bring with them the skill sets that Europeans need, which is to say, if you look in particular at Indians in education and healthcare, medicine, IT, programming, some knowledge of English, and so forth. I mean, one of the things that you talk about in the book is to describe a coming new age of, of mass migrations. But you also say that no Western governments are going to be prepared for this. That, that, that sounds as if it's going to be quite a troublesome time ahead. Well, you know, I almost wish I could rephrase that or modify it uh, because what's lacking there is the kind of historical context, which is that actually we are great at mass migrations and absorbing mass migrations because that is the story of the North of North America in particular and, and other countries of the West in general over the past 300 years. So we have to be absolutely clear that rather than view mass migrations as something that have never happened before and a future scenario for which you know, we are ill-prepared, I should say that actually it's something that we have a very strong and positive track record and legacy of having accomplished and it's made us stronger as societies and it's made us who we are today. And simply put, that process is going to continue and perhaps accelerate and therefore we have to draw upon that legacy in order to um, to continue and it, that that absorption process i think that would be a fairer way of characterizing it and and how do you think that's going to impact politically i mean to to some degree over the last few years it, it seems as if the tide has been going out on certainly popular support for uh, globalization that uh, we've seen a, a new kind of populism uh, in a lot of western politics uh, does does do you do you see a kind of uh, a, a, even more of a conflict coming between those two things politically well, actually, quite frankly, looking at voter behavior in Western political systems, you might actually say that, you know, xenophobic populism is the force that's more or less flamed out. Uh, now, I don't want to be overly, you know, sort of confident in that assessment, but let's be very clear that Donald Trump and Brexit are not synonymous or representative of the broader West as a whole because you can look at Canada and you can look at Germany and you can look quite frankly at Great Britain. It's easier to migrate to Britain right now than it was before Brexit, let alone after it. So there's a peculiar irony to all of this, right? You know, prior to, to Brexit and, and afterwards, um, a, a even a skilled migrant or a college graduate from South Asia or anywhere else in the world would need to pay a security bond, show a proof of employment and various other things in order to get into the UK. Today, all you have to do is just scan a photo of your you know, sort of college degree and you're on the first plane in. You don't even need to have a job. There's an assumption and a hope and a wish uh, right now under the Boris Johnson government that young people will show up and it's practically pleading for them to show up and help Britain build back better and integrate themselves however they like into the labor force. That's current British immigration policy, fairly inconsistent with the idea of Brexit as such. Um, and you know, Although, can, although, yeah. it's, mm -hmm. it's a, although it's a mistake though, isn't it, to, to put uh, xenophobia and, and uh, kind of some kind of view around Brexit, around what nationality, um, the same in the United States, that, that it's, it's not a strict binary like that, is it? That, that some people have uh, different concerns that are not rooted just simply in some kind of wild xenophobia. 
Oh, absolutely. They may have those concerns and we can address them one by one. And we, we, we certainly also would want to sort of really uh, decompose or deconstruct the notion uh, that, that, you know, populist movements are inherently anti-globalist, right? We want to view trade as one aspect of globalization, migration as another aspect of globalization and treat each of them in turn. And then we also want to be clear to distinguish between what polities seem to want, and there's obviously not a whole lot of consensus about that, and whether or not what their decision is actually good for them. And I think that's the correct, you know, almost sequence of ways in which to discuss this, because it's hardly a vindication of Brexit that the UK has a shortage of 100,000 truck drivers right now, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a condemnation of it, and it's a recognition or it's a testament to the fact that immigration policy should in some ways be rooted in uh, supply and demand and economic logic rather than in, you know, being hijacked by the views of a certain minority. The same certainly goes to the United States. Let's bear in mind that it was during the Trump administration and during the pandemic that United States embassies and consulates had to remain open all over the world and beg and bribe foreigners who had any kind of medical experience or nursing training to get on planes to fly to the United States to take care of our sick and dying elderly in nursing homes and in our hospitals. So clearly, you know, the mere fact that there are sensitivities, cultural, economic or otherwise, about uh, some of the consequences of migration doesn't justify anti-immigrant policies, right? I think, again, it's really a question of thinking about the, the broader needs of the society and uh, what the skill sets are, uh, what the con appropriate countries of origins are, what our appropriate demographic balance is, and these kinds of questions. So I would, you know, de-emotionalize, uh, you know, some of these issues in order for us to get to smarter immigration policies that ultimately, I think, would satisfy everyone. Yeah, and I, I suppose the flip side of that would be the the way in which globalization uh, kind of prioritized a relationship with China. There was some pushback on that during the Trump administration, which has been continued under the Biden administration, uh, and seems to kind of look in a different di look in a different direction. So you know, there, there's always an ebb and flow on these things, advantages and disadvantages to globalization, isn't there? There's, of course, advantages and disadvantages of globalization, and I would I would pin the blame not on China per se, but on the mismanagement of the distribution of benefits from globalization over the past 50 years by our own governments. It's obviously far easier to scapegoat China for one's own domestic failures at uh, providing trade adjustment assistance to workers. And it's far easier to believe that narrative than it is to really reflect and examine the truth, which is to say that countries that have had a better redistribution policies, worker retraining policies that have invested in R&D and innovation and these kinds of things uh, don't have the kind of, you know, um, sort of, you know, radical uh, anti-China sentiment or blame China sentiment. And I think that we have to, it's incumbent upon us as kind of sane, rational, educated people to look closely at the, the origins of our dysfunctionality. And again, where the blame lies and the blame doesn't necessarily lie with China pursuing its own interests. And let's also disaggregate views on China or the vectors of relationships with China and the various kind of bundles of issues, because one can be on the one hand, very concerned about China as a geopolitical actor, but on the other hand, uh, very in favor of continuing to recruit Chinese students to the country. And that would fairly safely characterize, you know, the views of perhaps a large swath of the educational establishment. There's billions of dollars at stake in the U.S. economy in attracting uh, young and eager and, and, and uh, smart Chinese students into our country. It's the largest source 
of foreign students is is uh, is Chinese. So that's just tuition, it's the rent, it's the cottage industry of uh, you know language instruction and all of these things. And of course, the vast majority of them are not, um, you know, agents of the Chinese state and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and the fact is, and very interestingly, that even as you have this continuity in trade and geopolitical strategy in Washington vis-a-vis -vis China, um, the number of Chinese students that have been admitted or readmitted and granted visas to return to the United States for study has returned to pre-pandemic levels, despite uh, the, the sort of geopolitical tension. And I think that's, again, very, very revealing about how important it is to disentangle you know, these aspects of globalization and to celebrate, uh, you know, how important people to people ties are. So let's let's bring it back to where we started. At the, at the beginning, um, I I'd quoted that question that you ask about where we will live in 2050. Uh, I wonder uh, how happy do you think we'll be in 2050? And is 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 the world in 2051 in which you're looking forward to living? Um, I think I'll be in Berlin, which is, you know, at least for the last 30 years, been uh, one of my homes away from home and a place that's only gotten better with the passage of time. Uh, and it's uh, and it's really emblematic of the expansion and the number of global melting pot cities. Right. You know, we used to think that in New York and London you know, and to some to a lesser degree, Los Angeles, and then eventually places like uh, Singapore and Hong Kong and now Dubai, you know, would, or the world's or the, these are these cities all illustrate the point that over the past 30, 40 years, the number of cities that have become desirable, multi-ethnic, thriving, innovative, dynamic melting pots has grown. And that is uh, as representative or perhaps more representative and desirable a picture of how humanity is evolving than the notion that there is some kind of uh, knee-jerk, xenophobic populism and tribalism that characterizes and defines who we are as human beings, right? Because the story that I'm telling is is the one that's very much, if you will, even a linear one, um, and and therefore a much more reliable one. You know, we we urbanize, we have a higher rate of inter-ethnic marriage than ever before, and then cities like Berlin and others are crop Berlin and Toronto. Um, are cropping up that are, again, reinforcing this pattern that actually, if you look at the movements of young people in particular, and of course, young people are the majority of the world population today and and uh, and, and certainly tomorrow as well, um, you know, they are voting with their feet and they're actually choosing to move away from, to emigrate from nationalist and populist societies. And this is one of the ironies of the notion that in our media discourse, um, you know, our conversations are dominated by the notion that xenophobia and populism and nationalism and ethno-chauvinism are, again, the norm, whereas, in fact, those very same governments are the, 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 the sort of the main origin of emigration. So what, what nationalism succeeds at primarily is at driving away its own people. And it's another reason why we should distinguish between our characterization of, of governments versus their people rather than kind of generalizing about the views of entire societies. And the lens of youth that I use throughout this book is, I, I think, an extremely important cleavage between the, the generational perspectives, um, you know, that 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 are a real point of divergence, let's say, ideologically in the world today. Because everything that I'm describing not only is the sort of empirical facts of migration today, but are even stronger when you focus on uh, the movements and views and attitudes of, of, of young people.
So the book is Move, The Forces Uprooting Us. It's written by my guest, Parag Khanna, and published by Scribner. But for now, Parag, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.